What's up, y'all? I'm back. Oh, y'all thought y'all had to wait a whole nother week for another episode. And I am here to be in the Christmas spirit and give y'all the gift of another episode this weekend. So, I know y'all thought I just left y'all hanging. I promise y'all, I was researching. I was doing what I had to do. I got content. I just didn't want to record. I have a competition cheerleader in the house. And December is a very busy month for us. Like, literally three competitions this month. And then my baking page, lots of confection for my baking business. Give me confection. I'm a nice little home baker. So I have my 12 days of Christmas coming up. So you can follow my main page, Cinderella, or lots of confection to keep up with that. Okay, okay, okay. Let's go ahead and get into this week's case. Okay, part two. We will be getting into a murder. Y'all know how I do. I love me a good murder. We're going to be talking about the murder of a New York socialite. But first, what we got to do, we got to identify a theme. For this case, the theme is nice and straightforward. You know how I do. I like to get straight to the point. Manipulation. Um, Manipulation is the act of manipulating, controlling, or influencing an outcome unfairly, unscrupulously, cleverly, you know, just in a very slick manner of trying to make sure you get what you need out of the situation, regardless of how it may harm mentally, physically, or emotionally the person involved. It's Independence Day weekend in 1998 in an exclusive Upper East Side neighborhood of New York City. Mrs. Irene Silverman, a former Radio City dancer, currently living life as a wealthy, well-connected widow, has hosted a lavish celebratory dinner for the holiday. 82-year-old Irene lived a zestful life, fit with a full control over her wits. She abhorred being referred to as a wealthy socialite. She viewed herself to be very different from the uninteresting Upper East Side matrons who did tea when they were bored. She often told her associates, Lots of people think I'm very rich. And I am. (laughs) And is. Okay. But I have always worked. And look at where I began. I'm a tough broad. A child of the depression. Okay, so you better you better brag. She said she got it out the mud. I you feel me during the depression. Irene was born in New Orleans to an Italian fishmonger and a Greek seamstress. Now, like that sound like that would be a really cute mix, so you know, them Greek women be really pretty. They olive skin, that dark hair, and then her daddy Italian, so he had that nice dark hair, silky thick hair. You feel me? Good olive skin. Um, lean figure, but um, I looked at some pictures, and I'm gonna just say white people jeans just be mixing any kind of way. It ain't very straightforward. <laughs> I mean, we gonna leave it at that. 
Luckily, she ain't have to rely on her looks. She has street smarts from running jazz clubs and whorehouses with her daddy and the work ethic of her mom, who eventually had to barter seamstress services for Irene's ballet training. She was a great dancer, but too tiny being an official prima ballerina. But her skills got her to Radio City Music Hall, where she danced four times a day, four days a week, for $36. Like in total. <laughs> like she danced 16 times a week to make $36. What that even divide into? <laughs> That's not even a whole $2. Is it? Okay, maybe it's like $2.50 a dance. Um, and she was making more money than her mama, who was only bringing in $28 a week as a seamstress, which is more skill. That just shows you strippers been making more money than niggas who work 9 to 5, right? Because the skill level don't matter. If you, if you know how to dance, we going to pay for some dancing, okay? After six years of working and hustling, she began to entertain a few wealthy admirers, including a notorious admiral. In 1941, she married one of America's most successful mortgage brokers, Sam Silverman. Irene was soon one of the richest and more influential members of society, having homes all over the world. And I'm talking like Paris, Greece, Hawaii, New York, L.A. And she was in the circles of the elite. But when her husband died in 1980, sucked him to cancer. Fuck cancer. Leaving her with all his fortune because they ain't had no kids. He ain't had no prior kids and they ain't had no kids together. They was just enjoying and living life. Um, she changed up her associations. She switched it on up because she ain't like all the financier friends and all the stuffy tea parties. Um, she started nurturing more authentic friendships with people from all walks of life, as in fashion designers, writers, priests, British aristocrats, shit, even a butcher or a carpenter, they did good work. Irene just loved people overall. She enrolled into Columbia University, and though she seemed eccentric and she was older, and she had this ginger red hair, she thought she was Lucy from I Love Lucy Child. She had this bright red ass hair. People just loved her. Her energy was unmatched, and it wasn't because she would often give classmates rides home in the limousine, or because she carried chill bottles of champagne in her purse, child. <laughs> But because she had great stories and full of life. But let me tell you something. If I'm sitting there waiting for the professor to get in because he moving a little late this morning. And you pull out a bottle of champagne, baby. I got the orange juice already. What my mimosa? We besties. We four lifers. <laughs> Soon after her husband died, her mother passed as well. So she decided to remodel her extravagant New York house into many luxury apartments, basically giving boarding house for the rich. Because the rent was $6,000 a month child for one of the smaller suites. And it was said she did this more for the company and less for the money. But she was about her money too. It was kind of like her first time living on her own. So this is why she found ways to keep her time occupied and conversations going. It was said if she liked you, she would have the servants bring you breakfast in bed. But if she really liked you, she would take you out to dinner, child. 
She had many infamous guests at her upscale bed and breakfast. Like Brooke Hayward, you know, from the Twilight. Um, into the Grammy Award winning Shaka Khan, child. So when I say this old bird was Liddy, I mean it. The streets loved her. That's what made her disappearance newsworthy and heavily alarming. Her houseworkers had been off for the day except for one. And when she had not heard or seen her boss most of the Sunday on the 5th, she grew concerned and called another head worker of the household. They soon called the police who took this crime seriously. They say it's because she fell under a special category of missing persons under the age of 10 or over the age of 60. So like an Amber Alert but for grown folks. So there is a temporary headquarters set up as they search the neighborhood, hospitals, nearby shelters, even contacting police departments on nearby cities and states going as far as New Jersey. By Monday, all initial procedures had been exhausted and there were no leads. But there was one thing and it kind of made the investigators scratch their head because it just sparked them as weird. But there was a tenant unaccounted for. A handsome, well-spoken gentleman by the name of Manny Guerin began living in one of the ground floor suites of Irene's home. Now, he came randomly. He said he knew somebody that knew somebody that referred him to her. So he pulled up at the house or whatever. And like I said, Irene want company, but she bought her money too. And she ain't really trying to let people all up in her house because she lived there too. And she got servants that, that stay there as well. Um, So she do background checks. She wants your information, your identification. But Manny ain't have none of that, which was a red flag for Irene. But he produced the first month's rent of $6,000 in cash on the and let me tell you, cash is always a green flag. <laughs> People who come from poor backgrounds, oh, we love a good cash transaction. That's the best collateral to have. And ain't no taxes getting paid from that income. Mm -mm -mm. Manny came June 14th, and within a week, the red flags, they started glaring, boy. He still wouldn't produce his social security card, his ID, a passport, any information needed for his proper background check. He would hide his face from all the security cameras around the house. He had rude friends, namely one chubby older woman who was quite loud and rude whenever she visited. And he would try to get the house servants to switch up on Irene like, you know, she don't care about you. You know, what's your long-term benefit of working for her? Like... I would take better care of you if you work for me. But where we gonna work? Because you staying in the... <laughs> what? <laughs> but see, wasn't nobody really going for all that? Because he ain't had the personality to charm them folks. He actually was quite slimy as they realized he was eavesdropping on Irene's conversations. And even got caught trying to snoop in her office that was next to his suite. Um, he tricked one of the servants to give him a tour of all the rooms in the house because he said he wanted a bigger suite type situation. So, like, getting a layout type shit. Um, but you know what the biggest red flag was? That Manny was not that grown-ass man name. Manny Guerin was Kenny Kimes. And Kenny was no lightweight criminal. He was actually one of America's most wanted at the time, as well as his partner, the aforementioned loud, rude woman, Mrs. Sante Kimes. 
Sante was not the Bonnie to Kenny's Clyde. She was actually the mommy. <laughs> you heard me right. It's a mother and son crime duo. Sante and Kenny Kimes were master cons. They had pulled off a couple fraud schemes, mainly burning properties they owned in exchange for the insurance check. <laughs> Oh, this should be a murder or a city girl crime because get your money honey i ain't even mad at you they had ended up on the fbi radar after a combination of murder and bounce checks <laughs> the catalyst was the murder of a 63 year old businessman david Casden. david was murdered because he had confronted sante about a two hundred eighty thousand dollar loan that had been taken out in his name See, like, basically, Sante had sold David her home, but fraudulently signed his name on a second mortgage loan for said property that she previously sold and already made a profit from. And so she got a loan for the house that she already owned and then burned down the home <laughs> to receive another $100,000 in insurance money. So she made almost half a meal off a house. Miss <laughs> Sensei Combs, she was a wild one, boy, because she she bought a car in Utah and wrote a check for fifteen thousand. That check bounced. She went and bought a mobile home in Louisiana for eighty three thousand. That check bounced. So. Yeah, the FBI was like, yo, this bitch is hopping from place to place to place, and we need to stop this bitch immediately. Um, the couple was suspected of being behind each crime, having their description given to local police, but they disappeared sooner than they were reported. It's odd to know they perpetrated all these crimes, seeing as Kenny was the son of a multimillionaire who Sante had quote-unquote been married to for over 10 years and i'm saying quote-unquote because she know how to doctor some documents so they had a marriage certificate but there's like no like real documentation of no marriage and they didn't have any like joint accounts or nothing like that um ken senior met sante after building about 30 motels along the newly constructed highways throughout the united states okay so he he was like niggas is buying cars they is using their cars to drive niggas is getting highways built on these highways and while they driving they gonna need somewhere to stay so let me build me a motherfucking motel nigga was thinking monopoly okay now i'm sorry these is not niggas these is white people but it's okay because you know how i be talking keep going um, he left his first wife damn near penniless when she filed for divorce because she found out he had bitches staying all around the hotels and shit that they had built and he was being real controlling like he was giving her allowance and shit and then it got to the point where his sister and his mama lived in the house with them and she couldn't go nowhere without the mama and the sister. So the bitch had chaperones like he was mad controlling. So she went ahead and filed for divorce and I kind of blindsided him. But he said, I got something for your ass. Wait on it. And made sure she ain't getting out of dime. And she said, I held my head up high. I don't give a fuck. I'm ready to go. Okay. So in the meantime, Ken Sr. was entertaining bitches and he was just looking for a good down woman that was down for the con hustle like him. So when he met Sante and she made sure to woo him, 
He was in love, child. She was like real player. She was like, what's your favorite flower? And he would say something like, I'm going to just give an example. And lavender, right? And she went to the perfume shop, got a custom blend, perfume vials of lavender, and made sure she wore it all the time with him. So, like, she just gave him this ambiance. Like, yeah, mm-hmm, I'm all you. I know you. I'm yours type shit. Mm-hmm. Real player. I feel you, girl. Um, she will help him come up and execute a few harebrained schemes. One in particular that I found entertaining was that they swindled themselves into the White House to have a meeting with the First Lady Nixon. They were perping like they were huge Republican Party contributors and wanted to put the American flag in all the schools. And see, they were just trying to sell the flag and like on the the anniversary, like the 200 year anniversary of the independence. So he was coining himself as the bicentennial man type thing and they was thinking like oh we could put all these flags in the schools and that's about like ten dollars a flag and each school would need like 10 and it's like 28,000 schools bro they did the math I don't know how they math was mathing but they math said two mil <clears throat> but listen if you give me a potential two million dollar scheme I might try to pull that motherfucker off myself so I ain't gonna say too much they were visiting foreign embassies like the Belgian embassy, the German embassy. They was going all around, you feel me, the British embassy. And they was keeping up their life for a minute, but they had got called out in the society papers after crashing a grand ball. <laughs> and the Washington Post had called it the greatest crash since 1929. Well, the couple soon had a son. It was Ken Sr.'s third child and Sante's second son. Now, they don't talk about Kent too much because Kent was living with his first daddy, who was her high school sweetheart, who was her first husband. Even Kent had a rough childhood with his mama. He remembered, like, most of the food they ate was stolen. She taught him how to shoplift at a young age. They was crawling through windows, stealing shit, you feel me? Um, She was a prostitute at one time, so he didn't have the best childhood with Miss Sante Kimes either. But maybe she thought... She could start over with a new son, with this multimillionaire, live this good life, and pulling off these, you know, these big ticket schemes, okay? And I just don't get it. Like, he's a legal millionaire. What's the point of pulling off these illegal ass schemes? And they was doing petty ass shit, bro. Like, let me tell you how she went to the Cadillac dealership. She was like, I want to test out this cute little coupe, you feel me, drop top. I think this would be cute. I think I might want this. Let me test drive this. And she test drove that bitch for six months. <laughs> and when they came and got that bitch, finally caught up with her, she was like, oh, I was still test driving it, but I mean, I guess y'all can have it back. Child, she got arrested for stealing a mink coat at the Mayflower Hotel one weekend, right? So she was with her family, you know, a cute little family, and she was all did up. You know, they said she looked like Liz Taylor, but like the fat version. <laughs> and I ain't just saying that because I like seen the picture. I'm saying it because when she had got caught stealing, basically somebody witnessed her stealing it, and they described her to the police as a fat version of Liz Taylor. So when they came into the hotel room, you feel me? They seen like several mink coats that had been like cut out. The initials had been cut out, so it can't be no personal effects. So they couldn't really tie it to who. 
And then they found a men's coat. So they arrested both Ken Sr. and Sante. Ken Sr. eventually got off because the man died before trial. So I guess that just dismisses the whole case. Sante went to trial. Like, I guess she really prolonged that motherfucker. Like, she had a whole bunch of fake ass doctor's notes from Mexico saying that she was sick and she's in recovery and she's healing and then she came to court in like a wheelchair type shit to get sympathy and then when the jury went out to deliberate she quote unquote got hit by a car (laughs) and had to be flown back to Mexico for treatment and even though she was in Mexico the jury was like bitch we already in deliberation you guilty as fuck do you not know she got a good ass lawyer a nigga got money Got a lawyer, that nigga said, oh, let's get that shit tossed out because you can't make a decision while she was absent. The Kimes luck soon ran out because they got arrested for slavery, child. Yeah, white folks are still trying to keep slaves in the motherfucking 80s. These motherfuckers were kidnapping young Mexican girls, promised them to escape to America where they can work for a, a small wage. But when they get them to America, they keep them trapped in the house, not allowing them to leave. She would take all their identification, take their shoes. She tortured them by throwing boiling hot water on them, starving them. All the doors were locked from the inside and nobody can leave without Sante or Ken Sr. using a key to open a door. And that's just a regular guess. Like, there's no door in their house that you can go grab yourself and leave you had to wait till one of them get the key to let you out of their house so essentially anytime somebody walks in their house they're kidnapping somebody in my opinion because that's fucking jail so they both got arrested for that shit ken senior got three years probation in exchange for sobering up because his ass was a mean drunk he was a bad drunk okay so they tried to say like you know he barely knew what was going on he didn't realize they were slaves he thought his wife had hired some maids and shit he thought they was getting paid he was able to plead it out and they exchanged it for him having to sober up he did have a seventy thousand dollar fine and that's not enough bitch we talking about slavery not the fuck enough okay because i know that shit didn't go to them that went to the fucking bullshit ass judicial system but okay sante had to serve three years in prison she got sentenced to five but she ended up only serving three but she bragged about it she said you know i was in club fed but after that prison time sante decided to get a new motto nobody no crime and you know that's not too far of a jump Cause you know they say if you lie you're still If you steal you're killed So not a bad progression You know petty theft, fraud, not murder Easy In 1994 while Kenny was away for college Ken Sr. took Sante to the bank And was just waiting in the car Like her you know typical man I ain't gotta go in you go ahead and handle that I'm gonna just chill in the car But um Ken Sr. experienced a heart attack so they say because let me tell you something what's an official autopsy done miss sante ain't really tell nobody that my boy was dead she did get his body cremated because when her son came home he was like where my dad at she was like right here and like put the urn in his face like right here he in here yeah he died it was like two months after he died too so she was real grimy with that i don't know maybe her devastation you can't judge how somebody grieves and that what they say it was said the reason that she was in no rush to report his death because she 
actually didn't have access to any of his money, which kind of furthered my fake marriage theory. They were not married because, baby, you ain't got no account numbers, no account passwords, no nothing. Lo and behold, Shadi wasn't even in the will. Neither was her son. The money was left for his first two children. They did find out he had a couple of accounts offshore that was unaccounted for that wasn't included in the will. So it was in pursuit of this offshore money that Mommy and Clyde started their murdering spree. Mommy would come up with a plan. Kenny was the hired gun. There was a murder in like the Bahamas off the Cayman Islands. They were frequently interacting with this banker and he found it suspicious that he never saw the actual account owner and so he decided to ask them to dinner and i guess he asked the wrong questions shoddy ordered her son to kill him they killed him but they were never tried or charged for that murder it was just admitted in the son's testimony at his trial after that that's when they went ahead and did oh boy david Caston. They killed that man because, hey, you asked too many questions. We trying to get our money up. We ain't worried about that stuff you talking about, okay? I'm trying to get this money any way I see fit. Um, They also had a third person, Stan Peterson, who they let in every now and then. So he ain't know, like, the whole scheme of things, but, like, he would sell them the guns or he would do a cleanup job or you know just a person you would call in a clutch so it was because stan was mr clutch man that sante called him a few days before irene's disappearance um she called him to ask for a favor because she needed him to run a new york mansion that rented sweets to the rich she said it'll only be a couple of weeks and you know my boy Stan was like, okay, bull, I'm with it, whatever. But see, when he hung up the phone, he looked at the FBI agent sitting in the same room with him. My boy's phone was tapped. He had already been caught up by the FBI. They already knew who he was, the loose strings nigga. They was waiting for her to call him. And when she called him, that's when she sealed her fate. They know they were going to be adding the murder of a socialite to their long list of already charges, though. It's not entirely known what happened to Irene. I mean, Kenny did admit to killing her, um, but it's not said if she was strangled, if she was suffocated, if she was thrown away, chopped up. Like, they never found a body, even to this day. Like, they were convicted of her murder without a body. What we do know is based off of a lot of circumstantial evidence. Sante and Kenny went to meet Stan at the New York Hilton so they can arrange their new scheme. Unbeknownst to the Kimes, the FBI was ready and waiting for the pair. Kenny, he pissed himself. But Mommy was proud and indignant, proclaiming her innocence, which she did until the very end. They went to trial in spring of 2000. Though no body was found, there was an excessive amount of incriminating evidence in their vehicle, like Irene's passport and keys, two loaded guns, real estate transfer paperwork, blank social security cards, extra license plates, a change of wigs, a notebook of Sante practicing Irene's signature, and some more extra shit, like the whole workshop in the motherfucking car like a dumbass. The jury swiftly found Mommy and Clyde guilty of 118 crimes combined. 
sentenced to 100 and 125 years respectively. A few months later, Kenny attempted to kidnap a court TV reporter by ballpoint pen. I mean, because you in jail, you got to be creative. I feel like he could have got a better shank made than a ballpoint pen. Asking to stop the extradition for his mother. After three hours, they subdued him. But him and his mama were swiftly extradited. Dumbass boy, what you thought this was? And again, Sante tried to claim innocence, but see, Callie got the death penalty, and Kenny was not going for it, okay? He quickly took a plea deal in exchange for taking death off the table for both him and his mama. He had to snitch on his mama for that deal. Talk about a catch-22, because like... I see the loyalty because you just can't take the deal to save himself. But he did it to save his mama too. But like, nigga, you snitching? They got sentenced to life after Kenny's testimony. Sante was still saying, not me, all the way until she died in prison in 2014. I really don't have like a super cloudy conclusion. I feel like we all have common sense when it came to this case. Uh, clearly, these motherfuckers did it. <laughs> Sante was a master criminal who groomed her children to be criminals. Luckily, Kent was taken away and lived with his father and raised the right way. But unfortunately, Kenny was the product of two criminal-minded people. So... He just got dealt the bad egg. I will say it was kind of creepy to read into their relationship because when you think of mother-son duos, it's like, <sighs> that's already a weird dynamic because in most criminal duos, it's always a dominant and a submissive. Clearly, when it's a parent-child, that's the easiest dominant-submissive relationship to get manipulated into. But when it's a mother-son, it's always a little extra weirder. It doesn't make it any better that there were some rumors about this Miss Mommy and Clyde. As in, when he was in college and she would visit, they would just stay in the one bed. When they got an apartment after the dad died, it was only one room, one bed. It's giving Oedipus. They deserved the very lengthy sentences they both received. Like I said, Miss Mamas is dead, but Kenny is still alive. He done wrote him a little book. Kent done wrote him a book as well, son of a grifter. So, I mean, this do make for good content. It's kind of interesting because, you know, the running joke is when a person starts therapy, the therapist will automatically blame the mother. But it's not like it's the wrong assessment because your mother and the love they give you and how they treat you gives you those foundational tools you need as you grow and interact. It gives you your moral compass. It gives you your values. You know, your mother is your compass of love. When most serial rapists or killers attack women, it's because they hated their fucking mother. What type of relationship were they having where you wanted to commit crimes for your mother? And if you look at the variances of how a mother's love shapes you for your life, look at the victim and the perpetrator. Miss Irene Silverman was a product of her mother's love and her mother instilled great values in her and like she said she was a tough old broad from the depression so she got hers out the mud yeah she married rich but she made the most of it 
Sante Kimes never really received a mother's love growing up. Her mom was a prostitute and left her to be fostered and adopted by a separate family. And even though the adoptive mother tried her best, Sante had already been ruined. Her foundation was not established in a positive manner. And even when she had kids, her vision of love was distorted. It didn't make it any better that when she married rich she married somebody in a very deprived state of mind as well so kenny unfortunately never got to really experience a mother's love what he lived was a mother's manipulation to the idea and duty of a mother's love they say it can be smothering it say it can be too much but i know being loved by my mother and loving as a mother a mother's love is unmatched Thank you guys for listening and make sure you follow me on IG, Anchor.fm, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts at Cloudy Conclusion.